the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's program, executions in a throne during the Irish Civil War. One said to the other, he said, they're Irish men, he said, they're going to be shot. And we're part of the firing squad. And you and I are going to stand before that and kill Irishmen for something. It's highly debatable whether it was right or wrong. Ian Canelli reports on the local and national legacy of executions in an Irish town. Also, the establishment of customs barriers on the northern border 100 years ago this weekend. James Craig, the Northern Ireland Prime Minister, said that it was the south, not the north, who were the cause of partition. And there would be no partition without customs barriers between the north and the south. Cormac Moore on the past and present of the hard border and how it impacted people's lives in 1923. And to begin this evening, the harrowing story of Mary M. We're going to look now at dark days of the Irish Civil War and the violence against women perpetrated during that conflict. An extraordinary letter written by a woman named Mary to the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, Dr Edward Joseph Byrne, reveals a lot about the difficult history of sexual violence during the war through the prism of one individual's experience. This letter is the subject of a short film on Manaw100.ie. It's called Mary M and Sexual Violence, Ordinary Voices and the Irish Civil War. It's presented by Professor Lindsay Erner Byrne, Professor of Gender History at University College Cork, who joins me now in studio. Lindsay, you're very welcome indeed uh, to the programme. Tell us, first of all, how did you come across this letter? I came across it in the mid-1990s when I was doing my PhD and I had the good fortune to be in what was then the Dublin Diocesan Archives in Drumcondra, the Archbishop's Palace as it was known. And the archivist then was David Sheehy. And one afternoon he said to me, I said, I, we, I was doing research on motherhood and I said, I'd love to be able to hear what mothers thought of all of this. And he said, well, it's a long shot, but we have seven boxes of letters written by people from all over Ireland to the Archbishop between 1920 and 1940. And I said to him, I'll take the long shot. Can I have a look? And that was the next three years of my life going through or about 4,000 letters written by people from all over the country, although the greater were from Ireland, but you had letters from Australia, America, etc. Largely, they are what, what you know as charity cases. So largely, that's how they were labelled, begging letters. But there was everything in there, you know, from marital problems to issues to do with incest, but largely to do with making ends meet and trying to find employment. And among all of these, in one of the early boxes, was this very long letter, beautifully written. And I remember as soon as I picked it up, it looked different to all the others. So a lot of the others were pretty laconic and functional. I need this, the rent costs this, etc., etc. And here's this really long, very poetically written letter in beautiful joint handwriting and script. And I began reading it, I remember it on a Friday afternoon. And I put the letter down. I remember saying to David, who was the, the archivist, I think I've just read an account of a rape. And the reason why I say I think is because of the way in which she phrases it for our modern ears and, and mine at the time. I'd never come across any account of sexual assault of any kind at that point in, in, in the period of the 1920s. So it really wasn't au fait with the kind of language people might have used. So that's how I found it. And, and as I said, I didn't know what to do with it for a long time. I knew it was really special and one had to be really careful um, with what I did with it. So uh, it, was, it was another 10 years before I actually figured out what it is I felt I could or, you know, that's the story I felt I could tell mm. about it that respected it and its integrity and, and so on. So who was Mary M? Mary M was just any woman really and that's what's quite particular about this case. She wasn't politically active. 
She was a single woman in her 40s when the attack happened in 1922-23, during the period when I found the letter. And she was a carer for her aunt and uncle who were in their 70s, one blind. Her other siblings appear to have, at the time of the attack anyway, left Ireland or her sister may have married. I couldn't find her, change her surname, but the other siblings weren't in the country. So she, And she lived in rural Ireland on a farmstead. And as, as listeners might know, in the 1920s, a third of women didn't marry. And many of those women remained living in, in at home with relatives, aunts, uncles, parents, etc. That was very, very common. So her story until this point is really, you know, the story of many, many women in rural Ireland at the time. And the attack takes place in January 1923 in County Westmeath. Now, by January 1923, the conventional part of the Civil War was pretty much over. We were in a period of guerrilla warfare, but there wouldn't have been very much of any fighting going on in the in the Midlands or the North Midlands at, mm-hmm. the, at that stage. So what, what actually happened? Well, according to her account, and it does mirror the sort of random violence that was happening at the time in Gemma Clark and people like that have looked at everyday violence, have looked at these kind of raids on houses. So you had groups of men who were hiding out in the country and in need of supply and shelter, but you also had quite a lot of random criminality as well. And she identifies her tax as a gang of Republicans, or men calling themselves Republicans, armed to their teeth. But they may have just been opportunist. We don't know. And But other than that, the attack mirrors ones that, that other women have recalled during both the War of Independence and the Civil War. That's what's quite interesting. The story doesn't really vary. They go into the house. They're looking for money. They can't find it. They drag her aunt out of her bed, who's in her 70s and blind by the hair. And she intercedes to try and save her aunt. And the way she describes them is she said they were angry when they didn't get what they want. And one brute's duty passion overcame him. And I am now in a dangerous state of health. That's pretty much how she describes what is a gang rape. Mm. Um, and other than that, that's it. The letter itself is, is sort of eight pages long. The rape is given half a sentence. She does get pregnant, though. She gets pregnant, which is why she writes the letter. I think we would know about this. And this is what's kind of interesting from the perspective of these sources and the difficulty of of writing this sort of history or even knowing about this kind of history. She becomes pregnant in an Ireland that we know was exceptionally hostile to women who had babies outside marriage. She is, I reckon, 42 at this point when she's pregnant. I've got three different dates for her, which tells you, too, how slippery official documents are. In her birth certificate in the two senses, there's three different days, but they all date her between 40 and 42, Mm. 3. So she's a middle-aged woman, effectively. And she's pregnant and she's a carer for these two um, elderly relatives and she is in desperate, a state of panic when she discovers. It's it's kind of hard to imagine what she went through. She's not someone who appears to have had much of a network in the community and it's not the community she turns to, it's, it's the church. Uh, when she needs assistance, which but, is interesting, I think. But she sees herself potentially as a subject of public shame. I think she even uses that kind of phraseology in the letter. She does, which is extraordinary. And I think it's hard for us to try and understand the sense of shame and the way in which victims of assault and rape internalised the kind of idea that they had been damaged in some way, morally compromised. And and for us, for, as modern readers, what's particularly kind of difficult, I suppose, to handle about this case is she is most terrified about this pregnancy being discovered. She gives very little time to her own trauma and, you know, any sense of wanting justice. She's not writing this letter to the Archbishop to get justice. She doesn't report this to the police. That's not in her frame of reference at all. Her problem is, I need to have this baby adopted. And 
she refers to herself as having fallen repeatedly in the letter. So she does, in a sense, nothing, there's no sense that she is a victim in the, mm. in, or in the way we would understand it. It's a huge sense of guilt, which huge is ridiculous. Huge sense of guilt, internalised, yeah, huge. And she does no sense that because her pregnancy was a result of rape that that changes anything in relation to her moral position. So it kind of gives us a real sense of how difficult it would have been for a victim of rape to come forward and that the vast, vast majority, as is the case today, wouldn't have come forward if it weren't for this pregnancy, if it wasn't for a pregnancy. Now, the story is compelling. You deliver the story brilliantly. And as you're going through the story, you're kind of wondering, OK, where, because you've no idea, where's this going? And then you begin to talk about uh, an agency, a rescue agency, uh, Cruz's rescue agency in Dublin. And that becomes part of the story. And it would appear that Mary at some point thought, they're going to rescue my baby, they're also going to rescue me. But that's not how it turns out. Yeah. The other thing that was really extraordinary about this letter for me, because I was writing History of Motherhood when I found it, was it gave me one of the very rare maps of what does a woman who finds herself pregnant outside marriage with nowhere to go in 1923 do? And she maps it in the letter for the Archbishop because she tells him everything she's done to try and save herself and to save her her baby prior to writing and seeking his help. She leaves Westmeath. She goes to Dublin unaccompanied, not knowing where she's going to go. She's about, I reckon, four months pregnant when she does this. And she encounters an old lady on the street. And I imagine there was a lot of this. There were a lot of spiritual watchers on the streets of Dublin, Legion of Mar- Legionaries, Legion of Mary people, watching out for girls from the country who might be in trouble. So that was a kind of a rhetoric that you do find in a lot of those charity societies. And clearly she encountered one of these people who directed her to a rescue agency on South Anne Street in Dublin called the St. Patrick's Guild. And it was run by a single woman, Mary Josephine Cruz, and she would have dealt with about two to two and a half thousand letters and communications every year from women all over the country seeking assistance, pregnant, either wanting some help with uh, having the baby looked after or the baby adopted or to stay in residential in her one of her homes themselves. So she goes to Cruz, who she says initially was kindness itself to her. Cruz says, don't worry, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go back to Westmeath and just before you're due to deliver the baby, you're going to come back to Dublin, have that baby in Hollis Street. We will then take the baby. And this is what Mary thinks is going to happen. She does what she's told and she does give birth to the baby in Hollis Street because I found those records. And the baby is then taken by Cruz into the rescue home to St. Patrick's Guild. But it's at that point, nine days after she gives birth, that she realises she's going to have to pay for this baby monthly. It's 25 shillings. So not only is she going to lose the baby, mm-hmm. a la Magdalene Laundries mm-hmm. and mother and baby homes, etc., etc., but she's going to have to pay for the privilege. She's going to have to pay for it and she's terrified. She has no income of her own. She's a main carer. So as she says to the Archbishop, at this terrible point, I had to start robbing from my aunt's blind pension and my uncle's old age pension. And she's very clear about her faith and what a devout Catholic it is. And she says, having to do this means that I have lost not just my son, but my faith. I can't call myself a Catholic when I rob from these people that I care for. And then she can't pay anymore. She can't put up with paying uh, this money and taking it from her aunt and uncle anymore. So she writes to Cruz and says, I can't. I cannot give you the 25 shillings this month. And Cruz says, fine, I'm going to show up with the baby on your doorstep. And it's at that point that she uh, goes to a, a Franciscan friar in Galway and asks for help. And he writes to the Archbishop 
a kind of a, and this is very common with all the letters written to the Archbishop in this collection, a priest will often write his version of the same story, mm. either vouching for the person who's writing or saying, you know, forget about it. And in this case, he vouches for her. He says, I have no doubt that this happened and that we must help this woman. And that's what's extraordinary. He doesn't question her account and the Archbishop doesn't. And just to say she's asking for £20 because she has to pay for the adoption of her baby. There aren't regularised adoption services and it is the mother that pays for the adoption of her baby at this time. £20 is, if you think about the pensions that were being given out by the state to women at the time whose husbands had died during the revolution, that was £90 a year. She was paying 20 for this adoption. We also see, I think, two sides, I suppose, of uh, Catholicism in 1923, the charitable and the judgmental. Mm, I think that was really important too, because faith is really important to Mary. Uh, It is both a source of comfort to her, but it's also the source, I suppose, from which her shame and her sense of morality comes from. But it's also the place that's going to give her salvation too. And much more importantly, in the moment for her, it's going to save her baby and save her social position because they pay her the £20. I think for us too, it shows the role that the Catholic Church and the various faiths, because the similar stories for the Protestant churches as well, played in tidying the moral face of Ireland. Because on one level, what the Archbishop does is a huge act of charity. But on another, it means that this really terrible system of placing this blame and shame on women and the separation of mothers and their children in these circumstances is just perpetuated. And because it's not brought above the surface, therefore there's no sense of what's happening. And women individually around the country, because there's no narrative about this happening, they don't have any framework for their personal experiences of abuse because there's no sense that it's happening to anybody else. Is there any sense of loss in this letter? Does it come across that, you know, I'm, I'm losing my child? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, And I had one of those moments. I mean, it's such a privilege. I'm so privileged to be a historian. And there are certain moments, as you will know, in the archives where you're really reminded of the humanity of what you're doing. And that was when throughout her letter, she talks about how important faith is. And her expression of trauma is very interesting. She says, I can't find comfort in God. He's turned away from me and I can't understand why. It's really heartbreaking. And please give me my God and my faith back. I want to be able to go to confession and confess properly. So all of that's in the letter. But the moment for me was when I found her baby's birth certificate. And actually, I got so emotional. I remember I, I just sat down and I, I still to this day it brings out goosebumps for me because she called her little baby boy after the, the, the Franciscan friar who had helped her. And the name is very unusual. I'm not going to give it now, but it's the sort of name I believe that if her little son had ever been able to find her, he would have. It was so unusual. Mm. The, and the first name. And, Mar- and also she calls him after the person who believed her and who helped her. And I think I really do feel that was at such an act of love, that name. Yeah. Um, so I think she doesn't even have pause for that trauma, but it's written all over the letter and it's written on her son's birth certificate. What does it tell us about sexual violence and rape during the Civil War? Because we don't really know who was responsible mm-hmm. for this. What, uh, you know, was it criminals? Was it Republicans? Was it anti-treaty forces? We really, really don't know who it was. Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. And one of the big problems on trying to write that history is how few sources we do have. We have about four to five documented cases during the Civil War 
one from each side, if you like, perpetuated mm. perpetuate on very different uh, sides, all sides. But we do know... And this is from court records. This yes. Is not, you, you're not going to get this kind of stuff in the Bureau of Military History. Well, actually, you are. One of, the cases, right. one of the cases is from the Bureau of Military History. One of the most violent and upsetting has okay. come to light from the Bureau of Military History. No, sorry, from the pensions, pensions application. Yes. Excuse yeah, me, pensions, sorry. Pensions, you might. Excuse me, sorry. Uh, yes, uh, you're, you're dead right. But from the pension applications, there is one of the most disturbing cases actually has come to light through there. But we, we know there are many, many, the vast majority we, we won't know about. What it tells us is that at this time, violence against women in a sense formed also part of the general chaos and violence. We don't have evidence that it was used as a strategy of war in that sense but we have evidence that things like haircutting and abuse and you know gender specific violence was fairly routine throughout this period you know throughout the War of Independence and the Civil War so there's a long period of disruption and in this case she has an acute sense that the attack is happening because she starts it during our country's time of terrible trouble. So she very much roots the attack as part of that period of violence and disruption. And interestingly, at the end of her letter, she says, help me and help all our Irish, our Irish girls. And she's linking it very much with a sense in the 20s that the Catholic Church and others had that the period of violence had been really damaging to the morality of the country. And it was very much focused on women's sexual morality. And you can see that she's very aware of that kind of narrative that's being imposed on the violence of the Civil War. One case can't tell us uh, everything, but it gives us a real sense of certain universal themes and then the uniqueness of individual experience. But a lot more research needs to be done on exactly the role that this kind of violence played in the Civil War. We're also joined on the line now by Dr Sinead McCool, the curator of Manaw100.ie, which is part of the Decade of Centenaries. Um, Sinead, on the basis of what Lindsay has been saying about the recorded incidents of sexual assault during the, the Civil War, can we assume, given a reluctance to report these kind of incidents, that, that there were many other rapes during the Civil War? I suppose I would be saying to you, Miles, that the that the research is really in some ways in its infancy. When you look at the list of source material that's on the website to accompany this article that uh, Lindsay has prepared and you look at it um, as a chronological development, you'll see that most of this work is coming out of the Decade of Centenaries programme. And I would say to you that, you know, we've been surprised at what has come to light in the Decade of Centenaries programme and perhaps as a result of this programme or other programmes, people may come forward again to talk about this. But we know it's a really difficult topic. And when um, the decision was made in as part of the, the women's programme under the, you know, Minister Martin's Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltag, Sports and Media, you know, a lot of thought went into, you know, examining this particular aspect of the the decade of centenaries and when Lindsay talks about it in the context of the time it's very important as historians to get that context to get that understanding and I think when we talk about it um, in terms the the term always at the time Miles was was outrageous and there's a document in UCD archives 
that talks about the earlier period and as sort of an assessment of violence against women. It's a quite a scrappy document. There's a lot of notations on it and it was prepared for propaganda purposes. We're in a different period in the, in the Civil War when we're talking about this period. The, what Lindsay has described is the sort of the breakdown in, you know, the legal system, the, the you know, lack of a police force. It's a very different time and that's why it was really important to contextualise it and to mark this moment at the moment of the event happening rather than a point when the letter is written or, you know, at a later stage. So it's very much this moment in the Irish Civil War and what does it tell us about the general, what Lindsay has so well described as lawlessness. One other point I just want to make in terms of it is we've got a very articulate woman. With mm. every word she speaks, you are understanding her situation and to be able to articulate something this difficult in any time or any time frame, you have huge admiration for this woman in this very difficult situation in which she finds herself. And where I think we have is, is a mark of respect to the fact that she was able to explain her situation in this way and obviously was responded to by the people to whom she told her story. Finally, Lindsay, I get a sense uh, from you that you as an historian had a huge or felt a huge sense of responsibility mm -hmm. uh, towards Marianne, which some people might think unusual for, uh, you know, somebody who were reading something which was seven at the time you read it was more than 70 years in the past. Yeah, no, deeply. I, I knew I I knew I had to really be able to bring it to light properly and with respect. And one of the really important things agreed with the archive was not using the surname and obscuring the address. And if her first name had been any more unusual, I would have changed that too. And I changed the name of the friar. And so there's no, because I believe there's nothing served in that, but, but there is something served in telling the story because I think it has some resonances to up, right up to today. So, yeah, I was keenly aware and it did take me years to feel able to do it properly and to do it justice. And I am grateful to Manoa 100 that they gave us this kind of masterclass format at the time. It's very unusual to get kind of 15 minutes to go deeply into one letter in that format. So I think that was really important as well, that it was done properly. And, and, I, and I, I hope I hope people feel it has been. And I hope we've been respectful to her and to her story Sinead makes a good point about her articulacy. So she speaks for herself in this mm. piece. And that was very important to us. Yeah, I mean, she's a very, obviously, very mm. well educated woman. And as mm. you say, she's incredibly uh, articulate. It is, it's a, a wonderful film. Uh, it's a very compelling short film focusing on this account of the trials and tribulations of Mary M. It's called Mary M and Sexual Violence, Ordinary Voices in the Irish Civil War. You can find it at manaw100.ie. My guests are Lindsay Erner Byrne and Sinead McCool. Thank you both very much for joining us this evening. Thank you. And after the break, another story relating to the Civil War era in Westmeath as we look at the executions in Athlone in January 1923. The History Show with Miles Dungan on RTE Radio 1. During the Irish Civil War, Costume Barracks in Athlone was an important base for the National Army. With Sean McKeown as the senior officer, it was from there that the provisional government sent forces into the west of Ireland to wage war against the anti-treaty IRA. Costume Barracks also became a major internment camp for anti-treaty IRA prisoners of war, and by December 1922 there were nearly 1,000 crammed into multiple cells and cages. Near the end of that month they were joined by five new prisoners, 
Thomas Hughes from Athlone, and Michael Walsh, Herbert Collins, Stephen Joyce and Martin Burke, each from County Galway. These five anti-treaty IRA prisoners were tried by military courts-martial on the charge of unauthorised possession of arms and ammunition. All were found guilty and sentenced to death, representing five of the 81 state-sanctioned executions during the conflict. In this report, Ian Kennelly looks in more detail at those events and their legacy, both locally and nationally. The five men were informed of their fate at about 6pm on the evening of 19th of January 1923. Stephen Joyce prepared by writing a letter to his sister Julia, bidding her a last farewell. Tomorrow morning at 8am, he wrote, will be the happiest hour of my life. It must be God's holy will that I should sacrifice my life for Ireland. Life is sweet, said Martin Burke in a letter to his brother, but still, he was prepared to die. Poor Tom Hughes is by my side, he wrote, a soldier to the last. Thomas Hughes, meanwhile, was writing a letter to his mother. My darling mother, we are just after being told that we are to be executed in the morning at 8 o'clock. Do not fret for me. As with God's holy will, I will be prepared to meet him, as it is a grand thing to get timely warning before you die. My companions and I do not bear any malice against those who are going to carry out the deed. So, with letters written, the five men faced their final hours. The culmination of those hours took place on the edge of a small patch of grass hidden behind high walls on the grounds of Costume Barracks. No account of the execution survives except for one perhaps fictionalised version written by Anthony O'Connor, who was then a young National Army recruit stationed in Athlone. O'Connor wrote his account in a novel entitled He's Somewhere In There. Although long out of print, O'Connor's book was recently rediscovered and contextualised by historian Schiefer Aiken in her work Spiritual Wounds. It is not clear if O'Connor witnessed the executions, but in his version the condemned men were shot in one group by the firing squad. Immediately afterwards, an officer, holding a handgun, stepped forward and shot each of the fallen men once in the head. In Athlone, the execution spawned many local stories. One remarkable example comes from Joseph Flynn, a resident of the town, whose father Martin was a soldier in the National Army during the Civil War. Martin Flynn served with a fellow soldier named Thomas Johnston, both of whom, according to a tradition within those families, were detailed to the execution unit in Costume Barracks in January 1923. Joseph Flynn described to me the story that he first heard while growing up in Athlone. Yeah, yes, Tommy Johnson and my father, seemingly. So my father and uh, Tommy went over to that little chapel or something and uh, they looked down, so the boys mustn't have been uh, behind bars, uh, the people who were going to be uh, killed or shot, indeed. Uh, and they looked down and uh, one said to the other, he said, Martin, look down, they're Irishmen, he said, they're going to be shot and we're part of the firing squad tomorrow morning. Now we're back from, we're back from the front we're back from the front, it's as simple as that. The war is over. We were out there trying to kill Germans. And that's true, that's not wrong. And you and I are going to stand before that and kill six people, Irishmen, for something. It's highly debatable whether it was right or wrong. Well, he said, Tommy, I, whatever you'll do, I'll do. So the morrow came anyway, and uh, 
they all were brought out with the firing party and were told to fall in, seemingly it's an army thing, and they had their guns and all that, and the, the brought out, and the, the six, or I don't know how many people were going to be shot, or were they going to be shot in twos and threes and all that, but this is what happened to my father anyway. And they walked out anyway, and they fell in, and they had it arranged uh, to, when they got the order, uh, an order of one and two, it meant get the guns ready or something like that. But they said to one another, when we hear one, two, we won't. We'll take two steps back. And they did get the order. And they did take the two steps back. And that put everything into disarray then. The whole, that the whole firing party was stopping the pink. And those two reenagers was take, they were taken away, my father and Tommy Johnson. And they were put into a clink or somewhere else anyway. Then what the, the execution still went ahead. So it did. But there was hell to do in that loan. I was told this after, but now I'm 91 at the moment, so I did know a lot of kind of elderly people. And they say, young friend, he said, your father did this and all, you know what I mean? So it did, it did, did cause a lot of um, uproar in that loan. Joe mentions that six people were to be executed. Although five men were ultimately shot that morning in January 1923, Tom McGuire, a senior officer in the anti-treaty IRA who was then a prisoner in Custom Barracks, later claimed that he too had been sentenced to death, although the sentence was never carried out. Joe's father rarely talked about the First World War or the Irish Civil War. Joe, as a child and as a young man, learned about the events of January 1923 from people in Athlone, usually older citizens who had experienced the Civil War and who provided him with recollections and stories related to the executions. You see, as the years go on, like we all hear different accounts and, you know, people talk about and some people you meet and they say, oh, we, we, we don't remember, but we heard about it. But I had a great friend, folks, and he lived in Chapel Street and he was a great friend of mine. He used to say, and he never drank, but now and again he would buy an agon of brandy and he'd come over with me and he'd sit down and we'd talk and he'd say... When he drink, I, I used to vividly remember when he'd be, be gone halfway, gone through the nagging of brandy. He just kind of he sob, he would sob actually, and he said, "Joe, Jesus, Joe," he said, "Your father was great, and he didn't stick with him. He said he was great himself, and Tommy Johnson wouldn't shoot the prisoners." And I just said, "Pal, what?" Oh, he said it was terrible. What happened that day? He said. He said, my mother, my father, of course, was with McKeown, but there was lots of rows in the house over this and all. He said, but when, the, when Tommy Johnson and your father, Martin Flynn, reneged, it turned a terrible lot of people against McKeown. The story of the executions was not yet over. During the Civil War, the government had refused to return to the families the remains of those executed. However, after the war, that policy came under public scrutiny. The government faced immense financial pressures worsened by the damage to infrastructure caused by anti-treaty IRA attacks, and it could no longer maintain such a vast and costly army. As thousands of soldiers were subsequently demobilised, the army had no need for many of the buildings that it had occupied during the conflict, and it relinquished control of locations around the country, including some in which executions had taken place. An example was Tume Workhouse, which was the site of executions on two occasions during the Civil War. 
Before the army departed Hume in August 1924, it exhumed the remains buried there and transferred those who had been executed in April 1923 to Atlone's costume barracks. There, they were reburied. Those events quickly became public knowledge, resulting in widespread criticism of William Cosgrave's government, which responded by authorising the exhumation of all the executed men and the return of the remains to their families. On the day of the handover in October 1924, ceremonies were conducted at multiple locations across the country. The largest ceremony, however, was in Atlone, where 20 motor vehicles were lined up along the town bridge. 20 vehicles for 20 bodies. The scene was described by a newspaper reporter. Notwithstanding the inclemency of the weather, a drenching downpour continued from early morning. A large crowd had collected in the square or marketplace opposite the west gate of Costume Barracks. Many of the spectators were women and girls. Shortly after 11 o'clock, about 20 motor vehicles and a motor hearse arrived and were lined up from Market Square along the bridge to Costume Place. A few minutes before 12 o'clock, a guard of honour of IRA arrived and were formed up in double line facing the entrance gate to the barracks. Sometime later, two soldiers, carrying rifles with bayonets fixed at the slopes, emerged from the barracks and arrested a young man named Bernard Mulvihill, who appeared to be in charge of the Republican Guard of Honour. He was conveyed into the barracks between the two soldiers, and as he passed in through the gates, a little cheer went up from the bystanders. The young man acknowledged the cheer by taking off his hat, after which there were shouts of, Up the Republic! The ceremony began soon after. The first body handed over was that of Michael Walsh from Carla Strand, County Galway. After Walsh, the remains of the others were handed over at intervals of 10 minutes each. According to contemporary newspapers, the remains of the dead were contained in the coffins in which they were originally buried. Each of the coffins was then encased in a larger wooden casket painted a bright yellow. Perhaps the return of the dead brought those families a moment of relative peace. For the country it signified that while the civil war was over, its legacy would endure. That was Ian Kennelly reporting there on the executions at Costume Barracks in Athlone and the enduring legacy of the civil war. Our thanks to actor John McGlynn, as well as the Flynn and Johnston families for their assistance with that report. After the break, I'll be joined by Cormac Moore to talk about the first customs barriers on the northern border 100 years ago this weekend. Stay with us. The History Show with Miles Dungan on RTE Radio 1. A hundred years ago this weekend, on the 1st of April 1923, customs barriers were established on the northern border. This quickly made clear the tangible reality of partition on this island and had a huge impact on people's daily lives along the border. To talk about this hard border introduced a hundred years ago and some of the parallels with what's happening now, I'm joined by Dr Cormac Moore. Cormac is a Dublin City Council historian in residence and author of the 2019 book Birth of the Border, The Impact of Partition. Cormac, welcome back to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Um, We talked about this a few years back when the book came out and uh, one of the surprises and one of the great ironies in all of this is that Northern Unionists did not want a customs barrier in 1923. Yeah, they didn't want a border in Ireland. Um, now, 
they wanted Ireland, all of Ireland, to remain within the British Customs Union. So, you know, it's not not a case of they wanted United Ireland. They wanted all of Ireland to remain part of the British fiscal system. Because they did realise that a border, actually a hard border with customs, was going to impact negatively on trade in Northern Ireland. And it did. So they, they were adamant that this was a, a foolish step, as, as they would have thought it. And actually, James Craig, the Northern Ireland Prime Minister, said that it was the South, not the North, who were the cause of partition. And there would be no partition without customs barriers between the North and the South. And the Irish Free State was pushing for the introduction of customs controls for, for a few reasons, for political reasons and for economic stroke fiscal reasons. For years, nationalists had wanted fiscal autonomy, you know, if they were going to get home rule. And if we look at, say, the 1886, 1893, the 1912 uh, home rule iterations, even the Government of Ireland Act, they... The fiscal um, and powers were retained pretty mm. much within Westminster. So are you really independent if you've got self-government, but you need to go to Britain to get money, or the money is counted by the British Treasury, who are notorious for misdeclaring Irish revenue to the detriment of Ireland? So the reasons for fiscal autonomy were absolutely valid. Every other dominion had fiscal autonomy, like Canada and Australia. And you, you could really argue that you would not have, in, have any semblance of independence if you didn't have fiscal in, in autonomy. So they were right to look for fiscal autonomy. The problem was, and this was the dilemma, and they recognised this as a dilemma, there was a border on the island, a border they didn't agree with. But if you're going to have fiscal autonomy, you need customs barriers around your national kind of area. So there had to be a customs ring. It was fine for the ports. You know, There, there already had been uh, customs infrastructure there. But there was no infrastructure of customs along the 300-mile-long border between mm. Loch Foyle and Loch Carlingford. That had to be built at a very, very short period of time. And it did stereotype the border. You know, it actually, it made it real, it made it tangible. It, you, know, you, you actually put infrastructure, you put customs posts, you close off roads, you have customs officers, you have signs, you've got posts, you've got railway uh, lines stopping and checking goods. It does make the, the border very real. And you've got money from tariffs, and that money was badly needed. It was very badly needed. Now, we, we look at revenue now, you know, we would say income tax, corporation tax are probably the biggest re- revenue generators. But back then, the customs and excise was the biggest revenue generator. About two thirds of revenue was, was through customs and excise. And this was, you know, this is March, April 1923. The Civil War was still happening. So, you know, they were in desperate need of money. So they definitely did believe that and this would help the Exchequer. They also thought that they could squeeze Northern Ireland and they could squeeze Northern Ireland trade. Um, that was a bit bonkers, wasn't it? Well, it kind of reminds me of the DUP now. You know, the DUP have rightly, I think, um, been blamed for weakening the union instead of strengthening the union by backing Brexit and all of the other deals since then. And you could say the same, this dogmatic, naive belief amongst nationalists. And it wasn't just Cumann Gael, it was Republicans as well. They felt if there's a land border, it will actually squeeze Northern Ireland to uh, lose trade and actually end partition. Like, totally naive. And many people at the time said it was totally naive. Ernest Bly, for example, you know, the, the only Ulster Protestant in the cabinet, he said this isn't going to work. You know? and, uh, but the, the Free State government went ahead with it anyway, believing that Northern Ireland would end partition because they were forced to, even though their trade was more east-west than north-south. Um, for tax reasons, I suppose, the whole border thing comes into effect on the 1st of April, 1923. So April Fool's Day. Which was um, East, Easter Sunday as well, that which year. Was, yeah, and I mean, there's also a reason, I suppose, for it starting on, on a Sunday. But what practical changes had to come about before the border was established? Yes, so internally, uh, between the British government, the Irish government, 
there had been talks the Irish Free State was offered fiscal autonomy with the treaty. It was actually the very last thing Lloyd George gave to the Irish about two, three hours before they signed the treaty. But they weren't able to exercise fiscal autonomy for, you know, as a provisional government and even for a while when the Free State was officially formed on December the 6th. So they decided to do it on the basis of financial year. So the end of financial year was 31st of March 1923. Going into the next, they decided to do it for that reason. They only let the public know in the 23rd of February 1923 that there are going to be uh, customs barriers. So... There was a huge outcry in the public. Look, what do we do? What goods are do we have duties? You know, where are the approved roads? You know, what railway stations have to, or uh, railway lines have to do? So basically, they had, had put up temporary custom stations. Some of them were permanent. They had to have farms and, and newspapers and railway stations showing which goods you can bring in, which you can't. What what duties so they have had to pay six them. weeks. Six weeks to prepare for all of this. Businesses like Dublin Chamber of Commerce went um, ballistic. Said, "Can you just please give another year? Mm. You know, stay in the, f- the British fiscal space for another year. Let us prepare properly so that we can do this." Uh, in, so this is know. far worse than Brexit. Well, is it? Well, I mean, <laughs> six weeks. Well, people voted on Brexit without knowledge. Well, true. You know, yeah. um, um, so but yeah, this is in terms of disruption. In terms of huge um, disruption. Yeah. Oh yeah, but you have you have all this infrastructure coming up. Within a very short period of time, six weeks, and and they did, they went ahead with it, and it and people's lives were immediately impacted. If you were living close to the border, a lot of the roads you would have used. Say, if you're going from, uh, you know, from Abilene to Donegal, which which could have been only a mile uh, journey, it became a twenty mile long journey because of certain roads that you couldn't go through, and so on. This happened in say Loud to Armagh to, to Down and so on as well, all over the north border area. So it completely disrupted uh, people's lives immediately. And one of the really strange things about it was, because one of the elements of the treaty was the Boundary Commission, that there would be a Boundary Commission, it would sit and it might realign the border. Yet, the border is basically established by the Free State Government before the Boundary Commission starts to deliberate. And they accepted this, that they accepted the decision they were making to impose customs barriers and create a hard land border was going to stereotype hmm. the border. Create facts um, on the ground. Create facts on the ground. And they said, but they said, if they, if they, how long were they going to wait? Because at the time, there was no date given for when the Boundary Commission would convene. Um, the first uh, commissioner, uh, Owen McNeill, a Free State Commissioner, was appointed that summer, summer 23. The British uh, chairperson, uh, Justice uh, Richard Feetham, he wasn't appointed until the following sum- summer. Northern Ireland said they weren't going to participate. So eventually the British had to bring in legislation to, to get a Northern Ireland Commissioner. And they did, it didn't convene until November 25, as we know it. You know, the report, which was uh, shelved, didn't come out until the, uh, December 1925. So the, the, that's what they're that's thinking, that this could be going on for years and we're still going to be under British fiscal space. So we have to do it. But yes, they accepted that this is going to actually create problems for us in terms of it, it creating a border, creating the infrastructure mm-hmm. of a border. And it did. It, like Justice Richard Feetham, when he was chairman... And he had many interviews and many submissions. He kept on talking about the terrors of customs barriers, you know, and that why would anyone bring it further north when you're going to have, have to change the customs barriers, customs stations, further north or further south, whatever the case may be. So it made it very easy for him to actually decide, let's leave it as much as possible, you know, the border the way it is at the moment. And look, if we look at all the submissions as well, whether it's from unionists or nationalists, they constantly talk about the impact it had in their lives and that they didn't want... Um, they, sometimes they want to change it to the, the boundary, but uh, they were all talking about the terrors of customs barriers, essentially. And how long did this situation effectively last? You know, at what point does free trade begin? And does, is that, that hard border beginning to relax? Well, many people thought when Ireland 
would join the EEC, the, you know, the European Economic Community, that the the actual hard border would go because it had always been, you know, a, a name of the European Union, whatever name it was called at any juncture, to have um, no customs barriers within the member states, basically free trade between all the member states. Um, but it didn't like there was still barriers within the EEC when when Ireland joined. You know, there still were goods there were duties on. It was only in 1993, the 1st of January 1993, that the single market came in, the EU single market came in. And that was when the actual customs went. But we, we still had the troubles then, and there still was a hard border. You know, the, the kind of border changed, even though there was less customs and people were asked to pay or there was less checks that people had to undergo, the border was still very severe because of the infrastructure of the troubles. So it became more of a military border than a customs border from the 70s onwards, right up until the, the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Do you see present-day parallels with what happened in 1923? Huge, huge. It's striking, the amount of parallels. First of all, uh, unionists want to be want to remain as, as, as closely aligned to Britain as possible. And, and this is often a, a less-known fact that unions talk today about, uh, you know, they want to be treated the very same as the rest of the United Kingdom. They never have been. Like, there was loads of customs checks. If you were shipping goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland for the 20s and 30s, you had to fill out customs forms. You had to have declare, you know, what contents of the material was, were they due to be or not. Even though there was no customs to be paid, the, the only way of, of British Treasury counting the revenue from Northern Ireland was through customs checks and uh, and forms. So there's all, and even Second World War was even worse. They, they had to show travel identity cards, right, in 1952, if they wanted to cross the Irish Sea to Great Britain. So there's always been uh, differences between Northern Ireland and Great Britain and, and generally because of the land border as well. That's just been a big factor in that because uh, Britain wants to protect its borders and it felt that people from alien, the alien continent would get into the back door of the Irish border over the Irish Sea from Belfast and into Britain. So they actually put controls on the Irish Sea for much of the one, last 100 years and um, well before Brexit. There's obviously huge parallels in terms of the mis, you know, the misinformation, the downplaying of, of the effect it's going to have on people's lives and the lack of preparation that I talked about earlier that is obviously very prevalent uh, within with Brexit. And also it's kind of roles reversed, as I said, you know, nationalists were very dogmatic, were very naive in thinking that this is going to force unionists and Northern Ireland into United Ireland by putting up customs barriers. You could say the roles reversed in some ways that nationalists obviously don't want any land border some unions, even though a lot won't admit it, do want a hard land border, but that will not strengthen the union. That will actually weaken the union. So you have this dogmatic kind of uh, politics at play now as you, as you did 100 years ago. My guest is Cormac Moore. His 2019 book is called Birth of the Border, The Impact of Partition in Ireland. That's from Marion Press. Cormac, thank you very much for joining us to talk about the, the past and present of the hard border. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Kieran Dunn on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. 